Good morning, everybody. Morning, Barbara. Special welcome to you. Thank you very much. Hey, welcome. If you're joining us online, a special welcome to you as well. We're aware that that audience is continuously growing and so really grateful, uh, really excited if you've come to uh, tune in with us today. Uh, But if you're here in person, an extra, extra special welcome to you. It's fantastic to see you. Uh, I'm Johnny. I'm the location leader over at I, uh, and always fun to come and hang out here at Debenham. Always excited to see and hear of all the great things that are happening here in this community. Uh, If you've joined us for the first time this year, Happy New Year. Is it still okay to say that? The 26th, 7th of January? Still January, I guess. Happy New Year if you've come to join us on the first uh, of this month. And you've joined us at the tail end, the end of this series, Fake News, Fake God. And we've been looking at some of the fake gods we may be even accidentally following in our lives. And we've been trying to dismantle some of them. And often some of these gods are gods that we've taken from childhood, gods that maybe have some sort of fundamental fundamental truth there, but as we've grown up with them, we've started to ask adulthood questions of childhood faith, and all of a sudden, that faith starts to crumble a little bit, and as we're not sure what to believe, we tend to step away from belief altogether. And so as a quick recap, in week one, we looked at some of these false gods, false gods that we may have even learned about in church, and we labeled them here. We looked at the bodyguard God, this idea that if I pray, if I do the things that I need to do, God will always protect me. God will never let anything bad happen to me. But then as we grew up and realized that bad stuff did happen to us, all of a sudden the bodyguard God didn't seem so real and we maybe stepped away from that belief. And if you did, good, because that God never existed. We looked at boyfriend God or girlfriend God, maybe depending on who you are. And again, it's this idea that if I put myself in the right environment, maybe if I listen to the right songs, if I say the right things, if I hear the right things, then I will have this good feeling, that feeling you get when you meet someone new for the first time, there's that level of excitement. But when that excitement, when that feeling drowns off, maybe when the depression strikes, all of a sudden, boyfriend God seems a little bit distant. We looked at Netflix God, this idea again that uh, we can have things when we want, where we want them, how we want them, and we expect the same of God through our prayers. That if I have the right magic words to say and put them in the right order, God will answer my prayer in the way that I always want him to answer it. But what happened when God didn't answer that prayer? All of a sudden, Netflix God seems a little bit less real and good because he isn't real. We looked at anti-science God and the idea that can you be pro-science and pro-faith? Are they really as against each other as they seem to be? We looked at crossword God, uh, this idea that uh, when you have a crossword and you don't know the answer, you can just try and fill in the blank with whatever you can. And as long as there's gaps in the world, which we can't understand, we can just say, well, God must exist then. But what happens when those gaps start to narrow? What happens with some of those gaps when we can start to explain them? Does God become smaller? We looked at guilt God, perhaps the most damaging of the false gods that we look to follow. And many of us would have grown up in church and we'd have had this thought that, yeah, okay, God loves me, but does he really like me? And we grow up with this guilt God. So those are some of the gods in which we've been looking at over this past series. And we're going to be asking the question today, in the midst of a world full of false gods, can the real God please stand up? Not the real Slim Shady, the real God, can he please stand up? But before I answer that question, or maybe through uh, to get to answering that question, I want to recognize a common sense of what happens with all of these false gods, something in common that all of these false gods that we have today, as well as all the false gods that we have throughout history, something that they share in common. 
And that is this, is that false gods ask us to believe in them in order that they bring order to our chaos. False gods ask that we believe in them in order that we might, uh, in order that they will bring order to our chaos. This is true. I have a lot of conversations or some conversations with people and they say, my life was such a mess. My life was uh, really difficult. There was all sorts of things wrong with it. Financially, we were in a disaster. Financially, things were going wrong. Uh, My marriage was falling apart. We don't know where our kids really are. Life was so chaotic. And so I decided to just give this faith thing a go. And they don't really ask what faith, they don't really ask what God, they don't really ask who God is like. They just have an understanding that maybe this will be the answer to their chaos. Maybe if they start following these gods, maybe if they start following bodyguard God or Netflix God or boyfriend God, that somehow the chaos in their life will be made into order. And so to example this, I want to look at an ancient example of a group of people, some Egyptian people, who uh, relied on false gods in order that they might bring order to their chaos. But what we're going to discover is that whenever we do that, there is a catch. Whenever we rely on false gods to bring order to our chaos, there is a catch. And that catch is this, that whenever we do, it always ends up falling back on you. Whenever we rely on these false gods, the chaos, when it comes back, never relies back on the false gods. You are the one that ends up picking up the pieces. And this is what the Egyptians found out. So go back with me to the 14th century BC-ish. And I want you to imagine that you are a Hebrew enslaved in the land of Egypt. And as a Hebrew, I want you to imagine that you are standing by the river Nile. And as you're standing there, you're contemplating some questions that maybe you've been contemplating recently or in your life. Questions that revolve around this question, where is God? Where is God? I mean, really, if God existed, why am I a slave? Why are my people, why are these, my friends and my family enslaved and beaten and abused by uh, an, another, over, like, another power above us? I mean, if God is really here, why don't I feel it? I mean, if God is really here, why isn't he answering our prayers that we might be released into this land that God promised us a long time ago? These Hebrews were these descendants of Abraham. They were God's people, and yet God seemed awfully silent. Where is God? And so as a Hebrew, I want you to imagine that you decided in order to try and find out this question, where is God, you do what, again, maybe some of you have done today, you go to the nearest religious institution in order that you might get some answers to your question. And so you stand up from the River Nile, and you go to this path, and there is a mile-long path all the way up to the creator god, Amun-Ra's temple in Egypt. And as you start walking down this path, there are statues on either side, a little bit like this one here, of Amun-Ra, this giant lion-shaped body with a ram's head. And as you're walking, you notice that underneath Amun-Ra's chin is this statue of Pharaoh. And whilst in the Western world, we often communicate with words, we like to read things, we like, um, we like clearly definable sentences. In the Eastern world, they far prefer to use pictures and metaphors and patterns. It's why they uh, used hieroglyphics rather than maybe what we would consider a normal alphabet. And so whilst walking down this pathway, you see all these statues and you start to wonder what it's trying to communicate to you. And you look at this creator God and you think, what type of special relationship must exist between Pharaoh and Amun-Ra, this God? 
I mean, think about it for a second. You don't create thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of these statues, carving them each time and placing Pharaoh right in the middle of each one unless there's some form of special relationship. And so as you walk down this pathway, you then reach the, uh, the archway, the, the temple gates, as it were. And this would have communicated something to you as well. You see, the, uh, the Egyptians were masters at architecture. And as they approached this temple, they designed it specifically so that when the sun would rise each day, it would come and rise in between the gates. And what this would have communicated is something incredibly significant to the Egyptian religious faith uh, process that they had. It's that what happened inside this temple was somehow responsible for making the sun rise in the morning. What happened inside this temple was responsible for the, the natural order of things to happen. In a sense, inside is where order was created, and what happened inside the temple mattered in order that what would happen inside, sorry, inside, what, inside the temple uh, is where order was to be created, and, how, uh, and what happened was then going to be taken from the temple and removed outside into the chaotic world outside. And so as an Israelite, uh, you walk up to this temple. You start to see the, uh, the, the gate and wonder the, how this order is created. And whilst as an Israelite, you wouldn't have been able to go much further than the courtyard. If you were to go further and further into the temple, you would have found that it becomes darker and darker and more mysterious and more mysterious right up into the uh, inner sanctum from where this God would dwell. And each day, Pharaoh or one of his priests or some of his priests would go in and they would offer sacrifices. They would offer prayers. They would do different religious things in order that this chaos may be brought outside again. And so every day, twice a day, Pharaoh or some of his priests would go into this inner sanctum, go through these rituals, and they would walk from this sanctum all the way outside of the temple, all of the way down this mile path, all the way to the Nile, every day, twice a day. And why did they do this? Well, it was explained through the Egyptian creation story that would have been carved onto the walls of the temple. You see, in the beginning, according to the Egyptian faith, there was this watery chaos that took place, nothing other than a watery chaos. And in the midst of this watery chaos, the Egyptian god rose up on a mound and separated this watery chaos into the waters above, which became known as the sky, which became a god as well for the Egyptians, and the watery space below, which became the sea, also becoming a god. And then what happened after this is this air bubble became this world in which we now operate. And after doing this, this uh, Egyptian god, along with some of the other gods, got on a boat, which is why they're often depict, uh, depicted on boats in hieroglyphics, if you ever see uh, Egyptian gods on a boat. And they will circle the earth on the water above, all the way down below, all the way back up above, all the way down below, carrying the sun, which again is an important god in the Egyptian religion. And through doing this, order would take place. And who was the, mid the person in the middle of all of this system? Who was the person that was in the middle of the bubble making it happen? It was Pharaoh. Every day, twice a day, offering sacrifices, going through the process, taking the order from inside the temple, bringing it outside towards the Nile, making sure the order could take place outside. And what's crazy is we look at this religious system and we think, how possibly could this, anyone have even come up with this? 
How possibly could have people run with this for so long? I mean, surely, they, I mean, it's no wonder which this held, uh, no wonder that this had no longevity to it. There's no wonder that these gods died out and people stopped believing in them. But let me tell you something. The principles of what was going on here is exactly the same with the false gods that you may be following today. What Pharaoh was doing, what Pharaoh was doing is he was relying on the false gods to bring order to the chaos outside. Who was responsible for the Nile flooding in the way that it should each year? The gods were if Pharaoh did his job right. Who was responsible for the fruits to be growing in the way that they should? Well, the gods were if Pharaoh did his job right. Who was responsible for the seasons to change each time? The gods were if Pharaoh did his job right. Who was responsible uh, that the animals grew healthily in the way that they should have done? The gods were if Pharaoh did his job right. Who was responsible that famine didn't cross the land? The gods were if Pharaoh did his job right. Who was responsible? Who was responsible? Who was responsible? Well, the gods were if Pharaoh. And we find ourselves in such a similar situation when we find ourselves following the false gods. Think about it. Maybe you're someone who's fallen into the trap of believing about bodyguard God. And you think, if only I do this, if only I go to church, if only I read the Bible more, if only I pray the right prayers, then God will protect me. And that is you being Pharaoh of your own life and of your own false gods. That is you making the trip twice a day, every day, doing the things in order that the gods might bring order to your chaos. We become the pharaohs of our own life. Maybe it's Netflix God and you think, if only I manage to say the right words at the right time in the right way, then, then God will answer the prayers in the way that I would want him to. And you end up walking up and down the path twice a day, every day. Maybe for you, it's not one of the things that we've picked up. Maybe for you, it's something more material. Maybe for you, you rely on the big house, the expensive car. Maybe it's a person or family uh, or finance that brings you the security that you desire, that brings you the safety and the identity that you desire. But when the money runs out and can't pay for the illness, when the people let you down and don't act in the way that you uh, expect, when the house doesn't seem quite as big as it once did, when the car starts to rust, all of a sudden you're back to where you started with the chaos. And in all of these different things, who does it fall back on? Not the false gods, they don't exist. It always falls back on you. Who is left having to deal with the chaos that is left? You. Who is the person having to deal with the illness? You. Who is the person having to deal with the financial instabilities? You are. And who was the person in ancient Egypt when chaos would inevitably come who had to deal with the outcome? Not the false gods, they never existed. Pharaoh had to deal with the chaos. And so as a Hebrew... Imagine that you're living in this time in Egypt and maybe you're asking this question, maybe, maybe this God thing isn't really what I thought it would be. If I'm presented between two options, between the God that remains silent and these gods where we seem to be working and doing all the work, then, then maybe, maybe we've got it all wrong. And I think this is a principle that is true that when people don't know what to believe, they often step back from belief altogether. But just as maybe you're thinking these things, you overhear a rumor. 
You overhear something from fellow Hebrews that this man called Moses has come back to Egypt. Now Moses was this uh, person who was adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter and so seemed to have this split identity between uh, Hebrew and Egyptian. And he returns to Egypt and apparently there are some miracles that he's been performing and promises that he's been making which come back to this idea that the God of the Hebrew people was going to show up. That the God of the Hebrew people was going to stand up. That the God of the Hebrew people that you may have heard about from your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. This God was going to eventually fulfill the promise in which he made long ago to bring you out of Egypt. And in the coming times, things started to happen around Egypt that brought a chaos that Egypt had never seen. Plague one, as Pharaoh left his temple, on maybe one of his two trips a day. He walks up to the River Nile where he expected to see water, and it wasn't water, it was blood. Chaos hits Egypt. Day two, frogs. Frogs everywhere. Frogs started to come up out of the waters and started to get into every place you can imagine from when you go to sleep at night to when you start to eat in the morning. Chaos occurred. Plague three, gnats came up from the ground like dust and invaded everybody's personal space. Plague four, flies started to carry diseases to the different Egyptian people. Plague uh, five, all of the livestock of Egypt, camels, donkeys, horses, sheep, cattle, the things that the Egyptians relied on for transport, for work, for uh, military exercises, for food, for clothing, all started to die. Plague six, Boils on everybody's skin. Plague seven, hail started to rain down in ways which they had never seen, destroying houses, destroying palaces, destroying the temple of the gods who were supposed to be bringing the order. Plague eight, locusts, the most feared uh, insect in the whole of the Old Testament who would come in mighty waves to eat all of the harvest that Egypt had produced. Plague nine, Maybe the Egyptians went to the temple more expectant than ever, more worried than ever, expecting, as always, to see the sun raise in between those two pillars of the temple, but it didn't happen. Darkness covered the land. Chaos occurred. And who did it fall back on? Who did it fall back on? Not the gods, they didn't exist. It fell back on Pharaoh. And after the ninth plague, we read in Exodus 11, that Moses would come uh, into the courts of Pharaoh and speak with him as he often did after these plagues, each time asking Pharaoh to release God's people out of Egypt. And as uh, it happened every single time, Pharaoh said, no, it's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. And so Moses said, okay, but another plague's gonna come. And this is what this plague's gonna be. This is what the plague's gonna be, that the firstborn of everybody in Egypt is going to die. I mean, maybe it reflected the genocide that took place a generation before, where all of the Hebrews were thrown, newborn Hebrew babies were thrown into the Nile. Maybe it would have brought back thoughts and terrors of that moment that Pharaoh would have worked so hard to try and detract himself from. But Pharaoh, knowing maybe that it was going to happen, got angry and sent Moses away. Now consider this for a moment. 
If there had been nine plagues that had already happened and you had told Pharaoh the 10th plague and he still said no, what possible reason could there be to believe that anything was gonna change? And yet when we hit Exodus 12, something extraordinary happens. In fact, this chapter seems completely out of place to the rest of the narrative when you read it. We expect to see the 10th plague take place and it doesn't yet. What happens is Moses goes from the courts of Pharaoh, he goes to the Hebrews, he goes to the the Israelites, God's people, and says, listen, I'm going to give you some instructions of what's about to take place and some instructions on how we are going to celebrate, how we are going to enjoy life outside of Egypt. I'm going to give you some instructions on how we are going to act on this day, today, as Pharaoh is going to release us. I mean, it doesn't make sense. It it, It doesn't fit into the rest of the narrative. And yet this is what Moses does. And we might read this passage and we think there is nothing special about it. And we're going to read it together in a moment. But as we read through this passage, you're going to think, why on earth is Moses going through all of these details in the way that he does? But hidden within these instructions is a truth about God, which would have caused the Hebrews jaws to drop. And I'm telling you, we'll read this now and many of us will just look at it and think, what's so impressive about that? Surely he could have said something better. But they would have had understanding, cultural understanding, which we'll look at uh, for a moment together, which will uh, completely revolutionize the understanding of this passage. And so we're going to go into uh, Exodus 12, chapter 15, all the way through to verse 20. Stick with me. It's a bit of a chunky passage. It's repetitive. It's, uh, it's interesting. It's one that you may uh, normally skip over. For seven days, you are not to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through to the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another on the seventh day. Do not work at all on, uh, on these days except to prepare food for everybody to eat. That is all you may do. Verse 17, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance from generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast from evening to the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses and anyone, whether foreign or native born, who eats anything with the yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Now I'm telling you, when we read that, we think what on earth could be revolutionary about that? What possible truth about God could be given to the Hebrews which would have changed their understanding from the religious culture that they were in, that they had to do things in order for the gods to bring order to their chaos. But I'm telling you, there is uh, a way in which they would have read this passage that would have completely changed. Let's look at the passage in its fullness. Don't worry about reading it. I'm aware it's quite small. But when we take this passage, remember that the Eastern people, the Hebrew people, were far more focused on pattern and imagery than maybe wording. And so when they would have read this, they would have picked up on a very traditional way, Hebrew way of reading text or reading passages. And they would have noticed that the first bit of the passage would have reflected, would have mirrored the last bit. In fact, if you read this at home, verse 15 and verse 19 are almost exactly the same verse. They're twins. They mirror one another. And if you go down a little bit further, verse 16 and verse 18 do exactly the same thing. The first part talks about what you should be doing in the first part of the month. And the second bit talks about everything you should be doing at the latter part of the month. But almost the same verse. 
But the idea of this is that it was to focus everything in on a central passage that was going to contain a truth about who God was, a truth that maybe they had forgotten in living in a land of Egypt amongst the fake gods. And this is the verse. Let's read it together on the next slide. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Now there are something, uh, two things I think that are incredibly strange about this passage when you read it. The first thing that I'd like to pick up on is that it talks about divisions being brought out of Egypt. Divisions is a, a very military term. It had lots of connotations to army. Now the Israelites weren't an army. They were slaves. And it's like God saying, I am going to be the one. I'm going to be the one to bring you out like an army. Maybe not an army ready to fight, but an army that has surrendered. I am going to bring you out. I am going to bring you out. I am going to bring you out. You have lived in a religious culture where you are the one responsible. You have lived in a religious culture where Pharaoh is the one to take the blame, where it falls back on Pharaoh, where it falls back on you. I am the one that's going to take responsibility. I am the one, if you are to surrender to me like an army, I am going to bring you out of Egypt. And the Hebrews would have thought, is this really the God? Is this really the God, the God who's gonna take responsibility rather than expect us to hold on to the responsibility? The second thing I like to concentrate on is this word very day. I mean, I think that's interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, on this very day? I mean, now? Today, really? I mean, it hasn't happened yet. What reason are we supposed to give? But maybe the more observant Hebrews amongst them would have recognized this word very day is coming from this word estem, this Hebrew word estem, which does mean very day. In fact, that's how it's used most. But it also means bone. It also means bone, and that would have brought them back to their own creation story from when Adam was in a moment of loss, a place where, of chaos almost, where he didn't know who his partner was. And what did God do? The first use of this word bone, a stem, was when God went to Adam and he removed a bone and created someone of whom union and wholeness could take place. This is a God who says, just like Adam and Eve, I am going to be the one to take responsibility. I am going to be the one that takes bone, that takes you out like a bone, and I'm going to create an environment where a union can take place, where I am the one to stand up. I am the one to take the responsibility for the chaos. I am the one. You know, the Hebrews also had a creation story where there was watery chaos. But unlike the Hebrew one where they had to work for it, God just spoke. He spoke and there was light. He spoke and there was water. He spoke and there was earth. He spoke and there were stars flung into the sky. He spoke and there were birds and animals on the land. He spoke and there were fish in the sea. And afterwards, did he go in a boat and go round and round and round and rely on someone else to keep the order? No, he rested. He said, that's enough. Order has been brought to this place. And when we start to understand this truth about God, that God is a God who does not want you to rely on your own capabilities, but a God who says, I am the one who's going to take responsibility. The message of Jesus starts to make a whole bunch more sense to us. That just like with Adam and Eve, where Adam was caught in a place of loneliness, darkness, and chaos, just like the Hebrews, where they were placed in a place of loneliness, darkness, and chaos, maybe just like your life, where you are in a place of darkness, chaos, and loneliness, there was a world which was full of darkness, loneliness, and chaos of our own making, and Jesus was the one who came to us. And whether you've heard the story 1,000 times or only the one time, 
Jesus was the one that entered into our chaos and said, I am going to take the ultimate responsibility through his death and resurrection. And if you surrender to me, if you surrender to me, then I'm going to create a union in which we can walk and I will take responsibility for the outcome. And maybe you've joined us throughout this series, maybe you're watching online, maybe you've been here for a little while, and that's the part that puts you off faith. Maybe it's that worry about what surrender entails. Maybe there's a fear around what that means. So I've thought of three fears which, uh, which you might relate to. The first one is the fear of losing control. I mean, if I lose control to God, I mean, what, what is God going to do with me? Where is God going to lead me? I mean, is life going to become boring from now on? Is life just going to become settled where I just have to follow a bunch of rules? You might worry and have the fear of, uh, of the power of God. I mean, if I start following this God, I mean, what's he going to do to me? Let alone with me, what's he going to do to me? Maybe you fear accountability. Maybe you're scared of what it means to start following and living in a way in which God would be pleased. Now, there are answers to all of those questions, and we would love to have time with you if you worry about any of those things and explain maybe why you shouldn't worry about those things. But let me ask you a question. When you are relying on yourself to hold the control, when you have been relying on yourself to have the, uh, to have the power to deal with the chaos in your life, when you have been living in a place with no accountability, let me ask you, how has that gone for you? Because chances are that you've come to church today with a thought that maybe you're in need of a little bit extra help. When has that ever gone right with you? Because when that happens, who does the chaos land back on? Always you. And so maybe that's you today. Maybe you're someone who's been coming to church regularly for years and years and unknowingly been following some of the fake gods, which has caused some of the questions around your own belief. If you are any of those people, I want to finish today with a challenge. I want to finish today with a challenge. A challenge that's going to require a little bit of time. It's not a, uh, a magic solution to everything. It's not something that's going to maybe change your whole world in a week, nor is it self-help as such. But I think it is an exercise that might start giving you the space to meet a God who is prepared to stand up in the chaos in your life. This is what I want you to do. 15 minutes this week, every single day. 15 minutes Every day, set it aside. Maybe you need to look at your diary and try and work out what's going to drop as a result. And in that time, turn your phone off. Try and avoid any distractions if you can, aware that people's lives are different and difficult uh, for a variety of different reasons. But in that time, with a piece of paper and a pen, use the first five minutes of that 15 minutes to write down some of the chaos in your life. Consider some of the things that might be driving you uh, insane in this world. Start writing them down. How does it feel? What does it look like? The second part, start to consider and write down um, and pray over those chaotic moments. Give those moments to a God and say, God, I am willing to surrender some of these things. Just like the Hebrews, we are going to create space. And then finally, those last five minutes, write down the ways in which God might be wanting to change you or maybe the ways in which God has been changing you. Changing your attitude, changing your perspective, changing behaviors, and maybe even changing your situations. And look at how the real God stands up and takes responsibility. Let me pray as we finish. Father God, 
I wanna thank you that you're the God who stands up. You're not a God who relies on us to be able to bring the order to our own chaos, but you are the God who wants to take responsibility. You are the God who wants to step in to our circumstances. You're the God who wants to stand with us in that chaos. Father, for some of us right now, there'll be things that come straight to the forefront of our mind. Father, with those things, would you help change us? Would you help be with us? Would you help us recognize that you're not a God who wants to see us tire on our own, but you're a God who wants to stand with us? Father, in the circumstances in our life that do change and that you can change, Father, I ask that you would. But Father, I wanna ask that through those moments we would grow closer to who you are and the understanding that you want a relationship with us, not a distant conversation with us. Help us, Lord, recognize the false gods in our lives. Amen.